Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Risk with Dr. Naveen Agarwal. Each week we talk about a topic related to risk management of medical devices in a very casual and informal way. This is not a webinar or lecture, rather our goal is to talk about key topics and challenges in a very informal way and share best practices. I'm your host Naveen Agarwal and I'm the principal and founder at Achieve where my personal mission is to help you achieve success in risk management. My guest in this episode is Joshua Levin, and we are talking about risk management aspects of in vitro diagnostic devices, especially in a small startup environment. Josh has done R&D in this field, and he has also been at the US FDA in a reviewer capacity, as well as in the post-market surveillance area. And currently, he is a regulatory consultant advising innovative startups in the IVD space. So he is the best person to have a conversation about this. We talked about this topic in front of a live audience as part of a LinkedIn live audio event. And you are about to hear a recording of this conversation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. We're going to be talking about IVDs, particularly from a risk management point of view, from a regulatory point of view. And the reason why I'm excited to have a conversation with Josh about this is because he has done it all. He has done R&D, he has been with the FDA, both as a reviewer and as a leader in the post-market space, and now as a regulatory consultant and advisor to innovative small companies developing great technologies in the IBD space. So he has seen it all. And I'm actually going to set our stage uh, in the context of a class one recall that was announced uh, recently on FDA's page. It is related to a blood test that measures troponin levels. And it is used, and Ajash can go into a lot of technical details about that, but my understanding is it's a very important test because it allows a doctor to see if someone is going to have a heart attack. And you can imagine if we don't measure these troponin levels correctly, and we misdiagnose it, someone can die. So this was a class one recall. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the perspective on risk management and the regulatory side uh, with Josh. So I hope you'll find this equally exciting and uh, participate in this conversation when we open up. So Josh, with that, I, I want to welcome you. Thank you for joining me today. Please, please introduce yourself to our audience. Well, thank you, Naveen. Um, and I'd like to say that my career is sort of an industry and FDA sandwich. So I started in industry and product development um, and moved to FDA as a reviewer and then a post-market team lead. And then I re returned to industry uh, in regulatory and quality roles, uh, working with small companies. And um, like you, I, in I enjoy the educational parts of my job where I get to work with uh, colleagues or, or partners um, in, in various small companies or, or mid-sized companies and help them with, with anything related to quality systems, risk management, um, and regulatory strategy. So uh, I wanted to, um, I did get a chance to listen to Naveen's uh, excellent podcast on Easy Medical Device and the Easy Medical Device podcast. And I wanted to refer everybody to that because Naveen really does an excellent job of laying out what you do about risk management when you have a very small team or, or you're a startup and, and you've been told to do risk management and you need to get started. So I, I think, um, and Naveen also provides an important public service in 
in holding these sessions. Thank so, you. Thank you, Josh. So, you know, before we get into the the, the recall case that I really want to talk about, I, I think I want to just invite your thoughts on where this field is going. I know we talk about IVDs, but diagnostics as a field, I think is going to just really grow because we have now software-based diagnostic devices, artificial intelligence, machine learning. They are becoming part of really almost everything we do in our life, precision medicine, right? So what's your like high level, 30,000 foot level on where the industry is going? Sure. Thanks, Naveen. So if, if you think about medical devices as being basically therapeutic devices and diagnostic devices, the kind of things we're going to talk about related to IBDs really apply to all diagnostic devices. So that might be um, SAMD, software as a medical device that's focused on the diagnostic um, application, even if it's not an IBD, uh, or say a wearable where there's a strong diagnostic component. And all of these things, you know, the, the risk management um, strategy is, is very similar. There's just tremendous um, innovation going on in this area. A lot of it is pandemic driven. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we now, the companies are looking more for at-home tests or 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 complex tests, uh, you know, using complex technology or, or, or uh, different software apps. There's and a lot of these companies, especially in the IBD space, are small and startups. Maybe they come out of a university and they, they're they just learning how to spell FDA. And <laughs> for risk management, they're looking for what, what do we need to do practically? You know, yeah. we, we don't need to know all the theory, but what are the practical approaches? Yeah. So we're going to see a lot of action in this space. And that's why I think this conversation is very important. So let's talk about this uh, class one recall about the troponin uh, levels in this um, cardiac panel test. Uh, and, you know, just very briefly, could you describe what that is and why it is such an important test? Sure. Uh, so troponin is kind of an oddball among IVDs. So many IVD products are aids in diagnostics. So um, it's not the be-all and end-all. Uh, so and we'll talk about severity um, scoring and, and how that's applied when, when you think about severity scoring and what the harms are, it's very important to understand the clinical context, the intended use of the device. Uh-huh. And again, for most IBDs, you'll rarely have a severity level of five, which is serious injury or death to the patient. Uh-huh. Not like an implantable that that will kill a pa- could kill a patient if there's an infection. You know, an IBD is run outside the body, and so it's it's inherently um, less risky. Uh-huh. But troponin is one of the rare exceptions where there's a test that uh, is directly measuring a, a risk of a heart attack. So it, the troponin um, analyte is is really one of the main tools the doctor uses to determine if there's a myocardial infarction going on. And if the if a false negative result is returned, the doctor could send the patient home from the hospital, and the patient could have a heart attack and die. So <laughs> when at FDA, we would have a weekly recall meeting, and we would discuss recalls and what classification the recall should be. And there was tremendous, um, yeah, yeah, um, dialogue among the medical officers. Uh, they'd get very passionate about it, and troponin was was often the um, the star of the show. Sure, sure. Uh, and um, I think there was general agreement that a false negative troponin would be a class one recall, which is the highest risk recall. 
just for confusion, the, the classification of recalls goes in the opposite direction of yes. medical device classification. So class yes. one recalls are the most risky. Yeah. So generally, we would agree that if, if there's a possibility of false negative results, that was a class one recall, which there's a much higher burden on the company in terms of um, of interaction with FDA and press releases and the like. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a big deal. So basically um, what I'm hearing you say is that uh, at the submission review stage, they would have higher expectations of sensitivity, specificity, performance. And in post-market, they would have a higher expectation of monitoring for false negatives, right? Right. And, and this is a, we could have a lot more discussion on this, but if you look at sensitivity and specificity of troponin, FDA expects a very high sensitivity and really a moderate specificity. And mm-hmm. this is the opposite of some other products we could talk about where specificity is very important, including right. products you wouldn't really expect. So um, that's a false negative versus false positive uh, kind of emphasis, right, right? right? In this case, false negative is very important. So right. uh, let me ask you this. You briefly mentioned the severity assignment, right? So let's play this mm-hmm. scenario. We are, we are building a troponin-based test, and we come mm-hmm. across potential hazardous situations that could be a false negative or a false positive. How would we go about uh, you know, thinking about harms and severities in those cases? So I always, first of all, recommend building severity levels into the risk management plan. That way, um, when it comes time to actually scoring hazards, you've got the numbers right there and the scoring is very easy. Okay. The severity scoring is very tied into intended use of the device and the clinical use. So for something like uh, troponin, we would probably have a discussion about where do we score on a scale of one to five, five being the most severe, the harms of a false negative. Um, And we'd probably end up somewhere between a four and a five and then but what are the harms of a false positive result? Because a false positive re- result just means the doctor thinks the patient has a heart attack, but they really don't. So they'd be treated for a heart attack, and the risk level's fairly low. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'd say, well, what about a delay in result? And how would that, um, what what harm would that cause? And are there maybe differences between a delay where you just run the test? For, for some tests, not troponin specifically, but if you had to say, take a tissue biopsy, then uh, if you had to go to get another biopsy, that could be a severe, a more severe risk. Yeah. But for troponin, we might say like a delay in results is like a severity level of a one or a two. And we would put that into our risk management plan. And then again, when it comes time to score uh, the hazards in an FMEA, for example, we would have those scores ready to go. Got you. So you are basically, you know, taking a pretty high-level system view, you are thinking about mm-hmm. delayed results, false results, false negative, false positive. You're thinking like you're really uh, sort of focusing, focusing your activities yeah. on core sort of hazards, very important hazards. That's yeah. a good point. And you are saying build it into the plan so that there's no confusion. Yeah. And, and for IBDs, those are really the three key harms, false negatives, false positives, and delay of results. There's a little bit of risk to the operator for some tests, but you don't have the wide variety of potential harms that you would with a therapeutic device like an implant. It's it's actually pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the different there's a lot of things that go wrong, but but the there's only a few effects on the patient. That's right. And then you have to build back the sequence of events and the initiating right. mechanisms that lead to those effects. And that's yeah. where a lot of engineering and scientific activity will happen. That's perfect. So now in this particular case, troponin class one recall, and I was looking at the recall announcement, I came across like uh, they had f- about 40 complaints. Uh, mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, like, let's say you're doing post-market, and 
uh, how would you even start to think about introducing a sense of urgency? Like, is, is 40 complaints and then taking action sort of uh, reflects the right sense of urgency? In your mind, I, I don't want to go into too many numbers, but how would we even trigger a signal or and a, and sort of a decision-making process when you have something as serious as this? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question, and I know the IBDR regulations try to address that. Um, FDA does leave that up to the company. <laughs> um, and FDA could see a signal, say, from a lot of medical device reports and request the company to do a recall or, or at least suggest the company do a recall. But it's really up to the company to have some sort of internal process of of uh, generating that signal. And, and um, QA may not necessarily have oversight into that process. There has to be some sort of uh, system built in where the people who are who are uh, assessing those complaints can elevate it to QA. It, a lot depends on the company and the size of the company. And yeah. a small company, hopefully everybody works together and yeah. there's a discussion about these things. And because here's the difficulty I think might might um, we, we be faced with, like, is that it's a false negative. And how do we know it's a false negative until we have right. some other result? So, you know, people who are taking complaints, they don't have the ability to kind of really diagnose the situation. You need right. technical experts who say, hey, I've heard this before. This is most likely a false negative. We need to escalate this, right? Yeah. So we need yeah. we need involvement of real experts into the complaints sort of evaluation investigation process. Yeah, and I know we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but um, we could discuss sort of how you build that um, triage system into your complaint system um, and how you make sure things are elevated that need to be elevated. Perfect, perfect. I hope... Uh, people would be interested in that and maybe uh, somebody share some insights or ask a question about this. So, Josh, I know before I open up uh, the floor for conversation, I had one kind of last question for you, uh, your perspective and insights on how to manage this in a small company environment, because I think that's going to be an interest to a lot of people. Sure. Uh, thanks, Naveen. I wanted to reiterate some of the things you said in in, in your podcast with uh, Munir and Easy Medical Device. So, so really, a good place to start is with, with the training, um, and and the procedure. So, uh, if you take ISO fourteen nine seventy one, if you're or somebody just learning risk management, first of all, attend the Beans classes, and then look at the fourteen nine seventy one standard and try to write a procedure based on the standard. Um, and when you write your procedure, you want to think about what does this look like in your company. Fourteen nine seventy one is very generic. Yeah. How would you proceduralize that in your own company? And then from there, you generate a risk. And the procedure is for all products your company might develop. And then you go from there and you write a risk management plan. And there's a lot of great consultants for risk management. Um, I can help. Naveen, there's lots of people who can, who can help. The way I, I work with the small companies that I work with is, is to first do a training. I do a training that is to fourteen nine seventy one, but also more practically, <laughs> what does an FTA FTA look like and FMEA? And we could talk a lot more about um, the use of these tools for IBDs. Uh, it, that would be a whole other topic. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Josh, because uh, I know Christy Johnson is in the audience, and Christy mm -hmm. and I had a conversation just a couple of weeks ago. She also starts uh, by training people. Get everyone mm -hmm. on right. board first. Let's not get confused by so much of stuff out there. Let's mm -hmm. build a common exactly. understanding is what I'm hearing you say. 
Excellent. I'm, I know we're going to have a lot of good conversation about this, guys. So don't hold back. Uh, per, you have already joined me here on the stage. So I'm going to invite you to share your thoughts. Go ahead, please. Now, I was just interested in hearing um, Jeshra's uh, opinion about when you have an issue like that, which you very well uh, said that needs more investigation, how would you enter into into conversation with FDA? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, let's say it was the case of the of the uh, class one recall for troponin. FDA is going to be very interested in in what your kappa was um, and what your root cause analysis showed. In this case, I believe it was a raw material, yeah, uh, which is a very common problem. Um, it, it, you know, a whole other topic of conversation is control of suppliers and raw materials. But FD would want to know uh, very specifically for a class one recall, what was the issue, what is the root cause, what is the company doing about it, and um, uh, and how can it be corrected? And we would expect, when it comes to raw materials, we would expect those controls to be already established, right, Josh? Uh, yes, but of course, you know, with suppliers, things can always go wrong. Right. And, uh, so you know, it, there are it, things, yeah. Yeah, so in the CAPA plan, actually, we would like to see what additional things you are doing to investigate other potential failure modes in the same area yeah. that you may not have captured. So uh, the advice here is that don't just copy paste from your FME and say, this is what we are right. doing, this is the controls. Right. Show to the FDA that you are thinking beyond what you thought before. So hold and, that thought. FDA, I think, go ahead. Perfect. I just want to say one more thing about that. FDA wants to see systemic corrective action. So yeah. just because if this was an issue with this product, FDA want to know, well, do you know how this affects other products? Or yeah. is this a one-time only thing or other reagents, things like that? So All right. they definitely want to see a systemic approach. All Can right, I so just go ahead, go ahead, Per. Go for a follow-up. So my question was, was I, I completely get what you're saying, but but, yeah. uh, but as, you, as we all know, some of these investigations will take time and then time is of the essence always. And, and once we uh, initiate a, a PFA and, and say, okay, we'll shut this down, then all the starts coming. But honestly, we don't know until the, the correct people have, um, have investigated this. What is really going on, whether yeah, it's yeah. a supplier issue, whether it's a systemic issue or whatever. So so that that was more the point of my question is, how do you enter into dialogue with the FDA? Yeah, I mean, at least when I was at FDA, we had a number of situations like that, and we would continue working with the company. Um, the recall doesn't get terminated until, I think, like six months. There's a whole process, but... Um, but FD will continue to have dialogue with the company, uh, especially for a class one recall, um, if the corrective action, the cap is under re- review or investigation. And also, Josh, isn't it right that if uh, they are not very happy with your follow-up and all, there will be more actions, even though you might close the recall, right? It's possible that they they have you now in their in their sites, like they're gonna be reviewing what's right. happening in the marketplace. Okay, so I'm uh, hold that thought. Guys, please stay, uh, please hang in there, okay? If you have time, now I'll let you uh, share more insights. We're gonna invite Christy now. Please go ahead, Christy, and share what you have in mind. Sure. Hi, Josh. Hi. Um, 
so much fun listening to you. Um, I Thank do you. a lot of work in kind of the same space. Um, my mm-hmm. question for you is just your experience um, with IVDs. I, I've done a lot with the NIH's RADx program, mm-hmm. Rapid Acceleration Diagnostics. And one of the things we did super early on with all the little teams is like we do the preliminary hazard analysis mm-hmm. and then we pause and we say, okay, let's now do like a fault tree analysis of mm-hmm. false negative. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, like, what do you do for early teams and how do you, what are your best practices for identifying, like you said, like the big three, false neg, false pause, and invalid or no result? Yeah. Um, like, what do you do early on to flush out the best information in those categories? No, that's a great question. And um, we end up having a lot of discussions up front, uh, you know, with with the, the company. And what does a false positive or false negative really look like in 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 the clinical practice. And sometimes they don't really understand their own device and how it's used clinically. And so that's, those conversations I think are really helpful. And like, what exactly are you developing here? You know, because this is early development, they, and it helps them get a better understanding. It, it ties in closely to the requirements. Um, and yeah, in terms of your approach of doing a fault tree, I, I like that. I've, this is kind of a separate conversation about what tool to use for IBDs. Um, and it depends a lot on what the device actually is. Um, and also, yeah, Josh, I, guess, I, I think, I, think yeah. I would also say that it has to be an iterative, ongoing process, right? We, Absolutely. We can't just do a PHA and a preliminary FMEA or FTA and then stop. Because right, yeah. like, uh, Christy, I'm, I'm sure you have done that too in your practice, facilitate an ongoing process because we will learn more during development. Mm-hmm. Right, fourteen nine seventy one tells us to start with intended use, foreseeable misuse, characteristics related to safety, hazards, hazardous situations. Right, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we stop there. So I think we would like to uh, involve our clinical folks early, have the conversation yeah. about, hey, how would people even know there's a false positive, false negative? What should they be right. looking for? So. Uh, Great conversation there, guys. David, I'm going to now invite you to share your thoughts. And John, I know you've been trying, so please hold, um, hang in there. I'll invite you in a minute. Thank you, Naveen. And thank you, especially Joshua. This is a fascinating discussion. Um, oh, thank you. I was curious when you were talking about signals and basically scanning the horizons post-market, <laughs> you're getting analog things, you're getting digital things, you're getting stuff yeah. from all over the place how do you how do you digest that and do you use formal methods or is it more ad hoc from one to another I, i'm just curious about your process well that's a great question and i'll i'll be honest to say that most of my work is with small companies and design controls early design so it's something for that for a lot of the companies to sort of way off in the future but okay it is something that has to be considered um and uh, at, at the way, uh, at least um, the, the the IBDR and post the post market surveillance methods described in the IBDR actually do a, a good job of this. FDA is kind of weak in terms of its post market system, but but at least um, looking at the way IBDR describes it, that you you have to look at at both um, uh, uh, passive data and active data. So passive data meaning. MDRs or vigilance reports, recalls, filled corrective actions, and those, those are and complaints. And those are all your passive data. And then you actually have to go out and 
proactively collect data, whether it's through new clinical studies or marketing or, and, and I think that's the part that at least the FD regulated companies don't do and will have to learn to do under IBDR. Yeah, and uh, to that, what I will add, uh, Josh and, and David, this is, for, I know many people struggle with that and it applies in general. I think you need to not only build uh, good data analytical capabilities, and I know that you can do that, but you also need to build a decision-making process. You know, I, I built a post-market yeah. surveillance system from scratch about 10 years ago, and we did very smart, sophisticated statistics on signals, and uh, the very first time we did that, we found 30 potential signals in a very mature product. So we said, you know, this is, uh, we have to figure out what is important, what is not important. And for that, you need to involve your clinical specialists, your engineering folks, people who have technical know-how to be able to separate signal from noise. And that's where, if you just follow the regulations, you will miss that, because regulations are not gonna tell you how to do it. You need to right. do both. You need to do uh, what Josh described, you need to build data analytical, analytical capabilities and decision-making process. So. Uh, we can talk a lot more, I know, uh, for yeah. sure on this, uh, but it's, it's it's a very big area of challenge for a lot of people, post-market, doing it well, doing it in a compliant, efficient way is very, very challenging. So, uh, guys, uh, we still have about five minutes or so. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or thoughts on this, please uh, raise your hand. I know, John, you were trying, but for some technical difficulties, we are not able to bring you on. Uh, so, uh Per, let me you know just open the floor again and see if you had any other follow up since you are still here. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Okay, great. So John um, Conway sent me uh, his question by uh, LinkedIn Mail, and he's asking. He's saying that agreed that the risk management plan needs to provide detail on the severity of harms, but beware only including this in the RMP and not an SOP as well. Severities need to align with harm from a systematics mm -hmm. standpoint to ensure alignment between products. So I guess John uh, is trying to make a point that um, there might be a portfolio of devices mm -hmm. which may be addressing harms of different severities. And if you put everything in one risk management plan, it may not uh, translate well. I think that's what I'm hearing in his comment. Josh, yeah. do, you, do you see uh, uh, anything else there that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It depends on the company. And one thing, the risk management plan is supposed to be product-specific, while the SOP is applies to all the products in the company. Okay. So if you want to put severity scoring into the risk management SOP, you have to think about, well, what if I develop another kind of product in the future that I'm not thinking about today? And we've seen this with some companies who okay. thought they were only developing products in a particular area and then branched out. So you do want to make your SOP... I think very general um, <laughs> so that it's not specific to a particular kind of product. Like let's say you're developing an IBD today and then tomorrow you go and develop a therapeutic yeah. medical device. It I, could I, happen. I totally agree with you, Josh. And what I have kind of practiced is uh, make the SOP uh, general in the sense that it must require evaluation of hazards, harms, yeah. and severities at the product level. And then, mm -hmm. in, and then you create a record, a standard record of harms hazards and severities that you can use after updating each time according to the product. And that record gets right. referenced into your risk management. Yeah. So I think you don't want to change your SOP too frequently, right? I think that that right. would not work very well. So Now, one thing some companies do, I'll say, is they, they will have a um, standard um, risk acceptability table in the SOP. Yeah. Um, and then in the risk management plan, you could go see 
if you're just going to use the standard risk acceptability table, you can you can do that. Yep. Because uh, that shouldn't change too much from device to device. No. So uh, I know we are running short of times, and Rick, you have joined us. I'm going to give you the last question. Go ahead, Rick. Rick, can you? Yeah, go Thank ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Josh, it's a great, great conversation. Okay. I, just, I don't know if I have a question, but more of a thought. Mm-hmm. Um, in the conversation, we talked about what the FDA would do, and quickly we went to a cap on the root cause analysis and then training and the procedure. And it thought to occur to me that those are the basic fundamental things that a quality management system should have. Yes. yes. But when you, when you get to, for example, the procedure, well, yes, it's got to be general in a sense. There's got to be a work instruction because the procedure yeah. is more informational guidelines, and you have to have a how-to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and one of the faults, one of the things that as an auditor that we catch a lot is they'll take a risk management procedure or a capo or a calibration or a validation, and the the training is read and understand, <laughs> and that is clearly false in the sense of. These are very difficult subjects. They have a lot of nuances. And the idea of having a general procedure and then say, you just read the procedure and you're trained, that doesn't work. So, so you got to be careful yeah. on the training piece. So, Rick, so I know Naveed, you, I, I, Naveed, I have a lot yeah. to say about this. I know we are running yeah. short of time, but Rick, yeah. I, I do appreciate that you made that point. And with your experience in auditing and helping folks really improve, uh, I'm just thinking out loud that why aren't more auditors flagging that? Why yeah. is it not happening that they're advising, they're telling their uh, their audit team? Maybe there is a, you know, environment or a vibe that it doesn't happen. But I would expect them to not really settle with read and understood, right? I would yeah. expect them to find something. So hopefully that will improve in future. So guys, I know we have very little time left. I'm going to give Josh a couple of minutes to uh, collect his thoughts and share some key takeaways with us for this conversation. But in the meantime. Uh, I would like to invite you guys to subscribe to the Let's Talk Risk newsletter because you can catch up on the past conversations. We have recordings, we have articles. Uh, you will find the link for subscri- subscription in the comments section for this event page. Uh, please go and subscribe and be a part of this community. Second thing yeah. I would say is if you have something to share, and I know you do, I know all of you have so much insight and experience to share, please contact me. And if you would like to be a guest on this conversation, it's not a podcast. Josh, I no preparation, right? No preparation, preparation needed. Right, right. It was only it's, a 10-minute conversation. So yeah. it's very easy, very simple. Uh, come and join us and have your insights be shared broadly. I really, really invite you for that. And finally, tell your friends. Tell your friends to join these conversations every 11 a.m. Eastern on Friday. Uh, with that, Josh, yeah. you have the floor. Uh, final comments, please. Okay, so my final comment is know what device you're developing. What's your intended use? What's the clinical use of your device? This is important, particularly important for technology developers uh, who often have a platform technology and they're not sure what device they're developing. So you could have the same technology, different devices, different intended uses, different risk management. So that's really my key take home from today's session. Got you. Thank you so much, Josh. I appreciate you uh, sharing your insights. Uh, um, you know, really, really thankful to you. Everybody who participated uh, and came on board is uh, also have my great appreciation. And uh, with that, I think, guys, we have run out of time. So uh, I invite you to join me again next week. Uh, we're going to have a very interesting conversation 
on clinical evaluation and state of art most likely. Uh, so please join us next week and uh, be a part of this conversation on the Let's Talk Risk newsletter. Thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.